0: and welcome to the Back In My Day podcast. This is the pilot episode, episode one. And today, um, I'm your host, Sebastian Onlon, and we have our co-host here, Oliver Forbes. Hey, guys. Okay, so that was uh, Oliver Forbes. And we have with us uh, a special guest uh, who you know, has kindly agreed to let us uh, let him on to our amazing and slightly scuffed podcast. Uh, can you introduce yourself, please?
1: Uh, good afternoon. It's Mr. Watson here.
0: Yes. All right. So we've got <laughs> Mr. Watson here. Um, yeah. So I guess we'll just jump right into the questions in the main body of this uh, episode. So the first thing that I want to ask you and, uh, you know, of the student body is um, can you give a short uh, summary of your life up, up till now? You know, sort of your childhood inspiration to become a teacher and what sort of led you here in short summary?
1: Okay, so um, I was born literally down the road from Ibstock, so I was born in Queen Mary's Hospital, uh, grew up in Putney, um, went to school locally. Uh, I think some know that I was uh, I was at Emmanuel for secondary school, um, and then uh, went from there up to Hull to do my undergraduate degree. Um, from there, spent a bit of time um, afterwards uh, running around in China for a bit before coming back. Trialing out law for a period of time, uh, and then realised that really wasn't for me, um, and switched into uh, into teaching um, just before the start of the pandemic.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. So you uh, were interested in law at first before you became a teacher. Uh,
1: yes. Yeah, so it's more I think thinking about what 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 do you do with a history degree, um, and law mm. I think was one that was a potential option to go into, bearing in mind uh, the transferable skills you get from studying history. Um, But for me, I realized, particularly once you get into the graft of it, it wasn't something that really gripped me at all. Um, It wasn't something where I could spend uh, sort of working into the wee hours of the morning, uh, working away on that sort of, on on, on legal cases. It really, yeah, really wasn't for me.
0: Mm, Interesting. Now, you, uh, your childhood was roughly like 90s to 2000s, correct? Uh, Yes, so I was born in 91. Mm. Okay, so you lived around
1: the uh, infamous Y2K incident then, correct? The, the infamous Y2K, I- yes. I, although the way I might be describing it to you in a moment um, is it wouldn't necessarily render it as infamous.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, so to our listeners who uh, may not be as uh, informed about Y2K, it's uh, referring mainly to the event around the Millennium bug which was a computer system uh, malfunction which they believed would happen when the date would change from 1999 to 2000. Because back in the day, computers didn't really have the same storage as uh, the ones nowadays. So they had to save as much space as they could. And one way of doing this was reducing the date to the last two figures. So that was 99 and uh, 2000, which was 00. The problem with this was essentially, there were about three different things that could happen either. Uh, the computers would believe that the date was zero zero and just restart the count over again, or it would loop back on itself and believe the number was infinite, or it would just completely shut down. Either way, it would uh, either be catastrophic or nothing would happen at all. In actuality, it was uh, roughly, you know, nothing really happened basically Uh, there were some credit card machine failures and uh, some display times that were incorrect and um, I think one of the interesting facts about this was that the UN spent roughly uh, 300 to 500 billion attempting to uh, safe proof their systems from this problem Um, but yeah over to you, Mr. Watson. Now, I know we we did a bit of research ourselves, but of course, we didn't live through this. So in a lot of the dramatizations, there's a lot of panic, you know, people buying bunkers and all this. I ju- how much of that was you know exaggerated. What was really the you know thoughts about this?
1: Okay, I should caveat everything we're about to say with the fact that i you' I was looking at this through the eyes of a nine year old. So that yeah. obviously means that there are going to be bits which I'm not necessarily picking it picking up on. So there's certain uh, elements that you've described that I was aware of since, but at the time, it wasn't something I was particularly cognizant of. I knew there was going to be a potential problem with computers shifting from uh, the year 1999 to 2000. Uh, I was aware that that could have very serious ramifications. But as a nine-year-old, you don't necessarily fully appreciate what the extent of those ramifications could be. Um, One of the things that stood out for me is obviously back in the uh, late 90s, computers were essentially large gray or white boxes. Um, and what, uh, y- what you would find is sort of building up to the year 2000 is people would get these little sort of fuzzy balls, called millenni- which are called Millennium Bugs, and they'd stick these on the monitor. So there was a slightly jovial side to some of this. It wasn't as though it was all treated as being, oh my goodness, the end of the world is nigh. Um, but I think the most vivid memory I have in relation to this as a serious problem was on the evening of the, mil- uh, of, uh, of, of the Millennium itself, so um, December thirty-first, being with uh, my family, watching news broadcasts, and part of the news broadcast, uh, aside from obviously hyping up what was happening at the Millennium Dome, um, and uh, and the various different uh, events that would be taking place in the United Kingdom to celebrate the coming of the millennium, was also looking at things that was happening or that, that were happening around the world at the same time. So, any sort of s- uh, slight issue to do with, say, um, potential power failure somewhere in the world, or a potential uh, computer failure in a system. I think there's w- one particular report I member from India where they're essentially just looking out for any examples of where that this Y2K event was could, could, could be occurring. Um, but but the, I think the main the main thing uh, to sort of to sort of d- draw draw I think or well the main lesson I sort of drew from this uh, is really a sort of hindsight thing, which was at the time I don't think I was I was old enough to properly appreciate the seriousness of it, and as I got older. One of the reasons I, d- I think it was—it's—it's it's still taken as being a bit more of a. Uh, uh, maybe you'll disagree with me on this, but it d- it's been taking—it's viewed as in a more light-hearted manner—is because it was dealt with because the fact that the people um, that needed to identify the problem and spent the money and the resources they needed to to ensure it didn't uh, g- turn into anything more than a couple of minor power issues here or there, or some amusing issues with date changes where people would arrive at airports or arrive at train stations and see the year 1900 instead of 2000.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's that's quite interesting to hear um, from a contemporary perspective at the, at the, at the time. Um, and moving on to our, our next topic, uh, that was a very interesting insight. We uh, are going to talk about sort of the rise of the Internet. Now, this, of course, you must have been very young whe- when this happened, of course. Uh, but around 1983, IBM invented uh, the Internet. Uh, so it was, you know, a basic sort of network network um, that was really just for private use and then came online in 1993, uh, which, how old would you have been then? Uh,
1: I would have been uh, either one or two.
0: Yeah, so uh, obviously, you know, uh, a limited perspective, but but there was a sort of, uh, as you were growing up, the internet was also sort of aging with you and ga- gaining more popularity. So did you, um like for example, d- did you use the internet in its beginnings, uh, sort of roughly when, when you were a child,
1: so so my uh, my dad was very much into ensuring that he had the latest technology. So the internet was something that uh, he was quite quick to to to, to get onto. Um, just this date this dates it very nicely. So one of the things that my dad set up um, g- from uh, when which I recall from quite an early age was an AOL account. Um, so basically, the old uh, the old way you'd access the internet where you would d- you would go onto the AOL browser and it would then dial up for you. Uh, the other key thing, as well, I remember from accessing the internet when um, I was uh, much younger. Um, and again, when I say much younger here, I'm d- uh, you know d- you're talking about seven or eight. You would have to tell parents that you wanted to go online because it would mean that no one would be able to make phone calls, or indeed, that phone calls wouldn't be received at the house either, um, because it was all done through a, a dial up connection. Uh,
0: I see. So I- then it was all sort of uh, rudimentary, and, yeah and it was around like your uh, what year, seven and eight years then. Uh,
1: so so this would i would have been uh, so d- when we're talking about in terms of dial up i would still have been in primary school um, mm. so it was very yeah, it, w- it was very i think the, the key thing um, and this is the big change that that, occur- that occurred during my lifetime really when you're looking at the internet is the speed um so when i was young i didn't really think it was it was much of a hassle really to sit there waiting for 30 seconds or a minute for a, for an image to load up whereas now i think if i was to ask you guys to sort of sit around and wait for a for an image to appear, um, it yeah, I'm not sure you'd be too impressed with the idea of having to wait thirty seconds or a minute to just see a, a sort of basic definition of a, of a of an image.
2: So, when did you see the internet being used in jobs and day and daily life on a regular basis?
1: Well, I suppose b- th- part of the challenge. So, so again, being quite young, I didn't I didn't necessarily see the interaction with uh, with it. Um, uh, bet- with it in, in the workplace but certainly in, in daily life i became aware of it or I, as i grew up alongside it um, it became something that i was beginning to incorporate almost instinctively into my life so if you were doing a bit of homework uh on on, on a topic and you didn't necessarily have the resources at hand to uh, to help you answer the question that you wanted to answer or you needed to answer the internet was it was even then being uh, something that you would go to um and it was a, it was a slightly more limited resource and this is also I should say, before the time of Google, so, so, so slightly before the time of Google, you had Google there, but you had other search engines like AltaVista and Ask Jeeves as well as another where you would type in your particular question that you had and you'd be able to get some basic response for what you needed and you'd be able to then, you, you know, from a young age I knew that was clearly of value.
2: So in terms of how the internet was used then versus now, how much do you think it's actually changed?
1: Uh, I think the key thing is the amount of content that's on there. Uh, second is I, I think the speeds Uh, the ability to be able to share video. I I remember vividly when we got broadband, my dad getting very excited showing a BBC report uh, from Iraq. And um, basically, the video itself was of appalling quality. I mean, essentially, it looked like it had been recorded on a potato. But it it, it was one where at the time he was very excited by it. And it's it's you look back at it now and you think how very quaint it all was because now we're used to the idea of being able to go onto youtube and as a standard getting high definition content um that was something obviously that 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 you just wouldn't wouldn't you know, you go back well how, how long ago is this the early 2000s you you wouldn't you wouldn't that's something which i think people would marvel at if they could see it then
2: since your childhood and growing up in the education system, how do you feel things have changed culturally surrounding ethics and change in style of education?
1: So I, I think in, in terms of are we talking g- generally here about cultural shifts that I, 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 I sort of uh, identify? Are we talking more about uh, about just changes specifically in education? uh y-
0: more about sort of the the, the culture and the, like the mindsets of students because i know obviously since you know the the social media and these these um new platforms coming in the mindset and sort of uh i guess say mentality of students has changed and i know a lot of people say that the, the work ethics have gotten slower or lazier and, uh, i just wanted to know your opinion on, on that
1: I, I think this question might be uh, more interesting for you to ask to someone that's probably 10 years senior to me, because one of the things I feel is that a lot of what I see in, in, uh, in pupils at school now, I recognise from both the way that I would respond to things um, uh, in, uh, when I was when I was their age, but also how I'd see peers respond. Um, so I, I think that the, the first thing to sort of say is that um, certainly by the time I was in y- your year uh, at, at school, Things like Facebook or rough equivalents, so MySpace or, or, or there's one called Bebo now, which I don't think anyone ever is, uh, even remembers. But um, you, you had sort of Facebook equivalents, so people were already using um, various websites to communicate with each other um, out, outside of uh, outside of your sort of your standard sort of text messaging and things like that. Um, uh, so I think th- that um, in, in terms of Uh, the impact that that has had, I think the the thing which is perhaps most profound in terms of the way that young people have been impacted now is um, short-form videos. And I do think there is certainly, uh, I think, grounds when I've read articles that have suggested that young people's attention span has been impacted by short-term videos. I, I, I must admit that's the bit that tends to bother me a little bit about things like TikTok, is is the impact of that rather than the fact that it's uh, it's Chinese owned? I think that's a sort of separate issue. The big the big concern for me is that I think does have an impact on people's ability to to focus and, and concentrate, and that is something new. But but aside from that, actually things like YouTube, things like Facebook, were things that I was using when I was uh, when I was younger as well. And yeah, I I, I think it, it it therefore means that in some respects, I, c- I sort of s- s- there hasn't been a great shift um with how young people interact now with, with, with what what I was doing when I was their age.
2: And based on that, this is more of an opinionated question, but do you feel the children growing up now have a better education than they would have back in like the nineties and two thousands? I,
1: I think standards of education broadly have uh, have improved in terms of I think there have been there's been a focus um in on how teachers are doing what they're doing, and various different gu- governmental changes. So, The introduction of academy schools, for instance, has, 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 cha- has, has I think, allowed for certainly uh, within uh, the state sector an, an, impr- an improvement in the standard of education, although that is not necessarily uh, uniform across the country. I think that's perhaps something to stress. Um, but I, I think the other key thing as well that I've noticed is um, a focus on exam, uh, on, on exam learning, so ensuring that people are learning to exam. So one of the things that I did not get when I was at school was structured answers that were designed to help you get the maximum level of marks that you can in a particular examination. It was a lot more, here's some general information, here's some general ideas of how you should, should think about uh, writing these ideas, but you'd never have things like peel paragraphs uh, or anything like that. Um, because it was almost felt that actually you you'd do that on your own, whereas now that is a core part, particularly in in in, in a subject like history uh, and indeed in politics, of of helping uh, pupils uh, basically structure their ideas in order to ensure that they are hitting the, the the points they need to to get to get the grades they deserve on an exam.
2: And lots of lots of children nowadays think that that's a worse way of learning because if you're just learning on how to beat an exam rather than. Learning on the actual information and learning based on your passion, then it's like worse learning. So, wha- what are your opinions on that? Uh,
1: I think I- so. Uh, one thing I should caveat, perhaps, this, this with is I don't want to make it sound as though I think teachers now are just purely teaching to the exam. But I would agree, teaching to the exam has its limitations. Uh, ultimately, th- there's a, there's a balance that needs to be struck. You you can't uh, fully develop a young p- uh, uh, or give the opportunity for young people to develop themselves properly academically just by giving them exam style questions over and over and over they become very very good at an exam but that doesn't mean that they are uh, g- sort of thinking about things in a more intellectually sophisticated way uh, so part of the d- part of the challenge i think for teachers now is to ensure that you are trying to manage both so that you're giving you're ensuring that you're you're providing the requisite structure needed to achieve the most you can in an exam situation but at the same time You are also providing opportunities for pupils to think outside of the box, challenge some of their ideas, and also I think uh, appreciate the importance of asking questions. uh, And what I mean by that isn't just asking questions for clarification, but uh, starting to challenge some of the ideas you're being taught themselves. Because I I do think that's something which the exam system is very very bad at. I think it it reduces people to think that questions are think s- simply things that you, you are asked, that you have to provide very rigid, structured answers to. And obviously, in an exam situation, I strongly suggest you do do that. You don't just simply answer it with a question. But I- in life, what you tend to find is that it's I- the, the if you are wanting to d- succeed, you need to be in a position where uh, you are not just aware of the facts that are going to, be ad- going to help you succeed, but you also know what the most pertinent question to ask uh, is.
2: And moving forward in time a little bit, you also lived through the 2008 financial crisis, right? Uh, I did. Uh, l- this is a little bit complicated, but for those that don't know, I'm talking about the, the global recession that was – well, my information on this is limited by a 10-minute crash course video. But from what I learned by it, uh, it was caused by bank loaners lowering the standards for who could take out loans to buy houses. And they started letting buyers who were less likely to pay off loans take out really big loans from banks. And the loans did this because investors would buy portions of people's mortgages from banks because they were told that it was a really safe bet to make. And uh, then, so the more people who had mortgages, the more investors could buy. But because the demand for houses was so high, more and more homeowners couldn't pay their mortgages because these houses became a lot more expensive and valuable. So this raised the supply of houses, as everybody cou- who couldn't pay their mortgages would have the house taken by the bank so that put a lot of more houses on the market right and what happens to the value of something when the supply is overflowing
1: but there's not enough demand <laughs> well in this case you have a financial crisis
2: exactly <laughs> so lots of lots of banks and financial institu- and yeah, lots of banks and financial institutions started to declare bankruptcy because all these investors who bought portions of these mortgages started losing a lot of money and like investors panicked and trading markets froze, and stock market crashed. Y- so, oh. y- yeah. Well,
1: as, as I say, so what you're referring to there is uh, a collateralized debt obligation. So these were these these were these t- uh, financial uh, tools that were created by banks to essentially collateralize, so bring together uh, various different debt pools and sell them to investors. Um, so what they ended up doing was using rating agencies to basically beef up the. These these CDOs to make them look much better than they were. The underlying debt in these products was actually far worse than than was advertised, and that meant that people were basically buying worthless junk for money, which meant that uh, yeah, there were a lot of people left out of pocket.
2: So how did the aff- how did the financial crisis affect you when it spread to a global scale back in the UK? I,
1: I think the first thing that, uh, that that I should say is I so I w- so this happened when I was doing my A levels. So I was studying economics at the time, and um, part of the start of each lesson would be spent looking through the latest events as to what was happening. Um, I think there was a, a huge amount of concern over, over what was going to happen to banks. Um, uh, and I certainly remember uh, coming home um, one evening to discover that um, my uh, mum had had an investment uh, that was attached to something in Iceland. I can't remember the of exactly what it was, but w- as Iceland was one of, the f- one of the first countries to be seriously hit by the crisis, uh, essentially, unless you got your money out, uh, it was gone. Uh, so I remember there was a lot of uh, nerves about trying to ensure that 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 uh, the that assets that were uh, s- sort of in Iceland were were protected. Um, but I think the key thing that I recall as well was uh, what happened to Northern Rock. So um, the uh, bank based uh, based out of the northeast uh, essentially uh, e- ended up in a position where. It was, I believe, eventually taken over actually by Branson. I think it became virgin money. But that was essentially um, in a position where uh, you had a run on the banks where people desperately wanted to get their cash out because they were no longer sure that the bank would s- would would, uh, would last. Um, this is obviously partially caused by the fact that Lehman Brothers, an established uh, investment bank from the United States, had collapsed, um, which I th- co- caused a huge amount of shock at the time. And as I said, it, it Northern Rock was the most prominent, but there were also concerns... That other banks as well were potentially uh, were potentially going to go bankrupt, and that that in itself uh, causes uh, causes problems because uh, a bank that ceases to have money and assets essentially means that the people that have had their deposits in there no longer have any uh, a- a- any money that they can get access to. So that could have gone from being a, a recession uh, to a full on uh, full on depression. But uh, I think one of the things that that stopped that from happening was. Uh, insurance that the government put in quite early on to ensure that in the event of such uh, such a thing occurring people would at least have a minimum um, minimum amount that the government would be able to insure them for
2: that must have been really interesting to have lived through the financial crisis while studying economics uh, that must have been really good timing y-
1: yes but at the same time i think there's a, there was a lot going on um that uh, that that actually y- you almost felt uh Slightly overwhelmed by it, I think would be the be would be the best way of putting it. You, you, there was a huge amount that, you know, at the time, for instance, talking about things like collateralized debt obligations, I didn't properly understand that, and and people weren't necessarily aware really of what was driving it. You knew it was something to do with mortgages in the United States, but it wasn't, I think, until uh, afterwards where people were able to start piecing everything together. Um, and the other thing as well, I think that, that came out of this was was a, deg- a, a huge amount of anger towards institutions. Um, Some some of it was directed towards the government, but some of it was also a lot of it was directed towards uh, the the big banks, which ultimately ended up in a position where the government had to bail those that survived out. um, But that in itself, I think, led to a lot of resentment um, amongst the wider public who felt that people that had essentially brought this crisis about were then in positions where actually their their material worth hadn't been significantly damaged in a way that. Uh, people who had, say, uh, bought investments in the wrong stock, or indeed been, been in the wrong uh, wrong job at the wrong at the wrong moment, found themselves in in, in in a much more precarious position.
2: And personally, how did this affect you in everyday life? So, how was everyday spending?
1: Uh, well, be- bearing in mind at this stage, I didn't have I didn't have an income. I don't think I, I ever view, uh, ever thought of it like that. But I was I think aware of the impact this could potentially have on me um, after I'd left school and potentially the impact it could have had uh, post-university. Because the the big question in 2008 was really, well, how long is this going to be going on for? Um, uh, And and in some respects, um, whilst the government response uh, helped ensure that we didn't enter a depression, um, ultimately what has happened, um, uh, arguably as a consequence of the response, I, I, is, re- is 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 reverberating down to, to to not just my generation but unfortunately I think also to yours so when you're looking at things like asset prices one of the things that the government did in order to ensure that the markets kept going was was introduce quantitative easing which is essentially the targeted uh, purchase of, of, of particular assets and that therefore inflates the value of certain assets uh, and I think there is and I again I don't obviously have the statistics to hand in front of me but there is perhaps um, Course to, due course to believe that the the, the reason you have seen the stock market behaving in ways that perhaps is counterintuitive when you're looking at the the the, the, the general market performance uh, is down to, to is down to mechanisms like quantitative easing and certainly within property I think there is uh, that th- there are there are those that will argue that property prices have gone up partially because um, the, the one of the ways of trying to ensure that a crash didn't happen was to shore up asset prices. And that has meant that it's become harder for younger people to get on the property ladder because uh, of, of the differentii- d- difference between uh, what one earns uh, and what one needs to be, able to, afford, uh, to be able to afford a property, particularly, I should stress, in, in, this p- in this part of London.
2: This is a little bit of a guessing game now, but how long do you think it took the world to recover from the 2008 financial crisis? Uh,
1: uh, that is very much a guessing game. Uh, I could give you the historian's response, which is it's probably too soon to tell. Um, I, I, th- I think uh, the, p- the, the challenge that you've got is, is, as I said, the government's immediate concern. And this, when I say the government, I don't specifically mean here the UK. This was, uh, the, there were v- the various governments across the world that took particular courses of action that helped uh, to stave off uh, a, a serious global depression. Um, but in doing so, uh, you could argue that the ramifications of that reverberate down in, in, into the present day. And exactly what that, uh, what that means it it's, it's hu- it, 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 it is, I'm afraid, a bit more of a challenge to, to, to know. You could very well find yourself, uh, or we could very well find ourselves in a position where there is a financial uh, crisis of some kind, uh, or indeed a, a, an economic crisis of some kind, in the next five to ten years, and the source of that is traced back to 2008. Um, that, that is a po- That is a possibility, but that, unfortunately, is, is the way the market, uh, in, in part, functions. There's a murkiness to it that means... Um, Actions that are taken, which are designed to, to have uh, a beneficial impact at the time, can in the longer term reverberate and have and have more negative consequences in the longer term.
2: It was actually a uh, 2016 where the housing prices returned to pre-crash levels.
1: Uh, yes, but you're looking at one particular you're looking at one particular element in, in, in of the economy. There, I think uh, broadly speaking. You could say the intervention in the market in the way that the government, uh, I, say the, the, I keep saying the government, uh, the way that various different governments around the wor- world uh, opted to do, I think does have, uh, wi- will have, Im- could have had impact, which we're not yet fully cognizant of.
2: Okay. So uh, now for uh, touching back on what you said earlier in the first section. So you said you lived in China for a couple of years, right? Can you give us um, more context around that? So... Like, why did you move to China? How long were you there? Where exactly were you there? So, like, what city? And how did this differ from southwest London?
1: Uh, okay, uh, so, so I'll start with the first question, because that's the easiest one. Um, it, it, it does differ uh, quite noticeably from South, from southwest London. Although, uh, I still think with cultural divides, uh, I uh, an important point to stress on this, is a cultural divide is, is as big as you want it to be. If you're going to go into a situation and you think, well... These people are from a very different culture. They won't understand me. Then you're probably shooting yourself in the foot a little bit. There is, uh, there are certainly cultural distinctions and differences that are, that are present, and it would be naive to p- suggest that they weren't. But how much of a divide you want that to be, um, yeah, that, that's that's I think that's that's up to, that's up to you. Individuals are individuals, and and you do find that they are very uh, certainly my experience in China was people are very very open and uh, and, uh, and want to help. Uh, so in terms of uh, in terms of why I went out there. Um, I, I I'm afraid it's a slightly sort of nerdy reason, really, uh, which is that I found China interesting. I, uh, I, I sort of wanted to know a little bit more about its culture. I also wanted to know why, uh, wh- what it was that had made China so important. So obviously, China through my lifetime had been the economic miracle, and I wanted to perhaps understand a little bit more about what that looked like on the ground. Uh, so there's, a, as I said, cultural interest, economic interest, as well as, uh, as obviously being me, and historical interest was the sort of the pull factor. As well as, uh, as I suppose, the fact that once I left university, I wasn't entirely sure what it was that I wanted to do job-wise. Um, so yeah, in terms of where where I went off to, I went to initially to go and teach English um, in a school in uh, in in a place called Wuzhong, which is uh, in uh, the Ningxia region of China, which is over sort of central China, um, towards central China, and then uh, I spent about a year and a half. Uh, after that, living in uh, in Beijing, and uh, had
0: you studied uh, China and Chinese history, the the economics before you head there, the the culture, as you said,
1: um, I had studied um, elements of Chinese history, so I certainly had spent time studying um, modern Chinese history, so looking at the rise of uh, the Communist Party. Um, but in terms of my general understanding, I found that was much better honed once I was there. So a lot of the focus when I moved to China was very much sort of uh, s- speaking with people about, well, I suppose, th- their, their views on China, their views of the o- on, on the wider world. Um, but also, I suppose, trying to get to, to better understand China on its own terms. So understand exactly what it was, how it was that China presented itself to the wider world um, or wants to present itself to the wider world and how it was presenting itself to to its own population.
0: So, do you think you achieved the goals that you set out to China to achieve?
1: Uh, n- not necessarily. No, I think what I started was something which is not possible to complete. If you're wanting to to sort of understand uh, a, a culture and a country that is as complex as China is, that's a lifelong uh, that's a, that's a lifelong pursuit. Uh, I, I think in the same way that if you're trying to study something like the United Kingdom, that in itself, you're bearing in mind this is an island of what between 60 and 70 million people. Uh, i think that there's a lot um that there's a lot of complexity that exists here so a country of 1.4 billion uh, i think yeah it, it's it, it that you, you, you two and a half years you sort of scratch the surface but you're left probably with more questions to ask
2: and saying and you said that it was the uh, it was an economic miracle do you, are you referring to how well it recovered from the 2008 recession and when it Became the world's largest economy in
1: 2014. Uh, No, uh, so so China in that in this regard, I'm talking about something much much more uh, much more longer term than that. So the sort of the Chinese miracle, as it's as is often referred to, started in the late 70s, early 80s under a leader called Deng Xiaoping, and essentially there was a period in China known as the reform and opening period or the Gaige Kai and the idea was that you would basically bring in foreign expertise into China. In order to try and help boost its economy, and China's growth uh, really was exponential. So, so even prior to 2008, um, I think there were certain stereotypes about China. Certainly, when I was your age, about world, you know, it's essentially, it's basically the world's toy shop. It makes all all, all the knickknacks that people want. But what's its what's its real economic value? Um, I I think China has has been able to show quite uh, quite uh, uh, resoundingly that. Certainly, post two thousand and eight, with with the investment that came in and that continued trajectory forward, that it's been able to uh, it's able to produce um, lots that is a, that is of value and able in some respects to to to, to outcompete uh, products that we have uh, I, I, in the West and technology that we have in the West.
2: Okay, so what could you see in your everyday life that showed this kind of economic miracle?
1: I, I think it's more how China changed over time. So I might probably st- step back a little bit here. So I, my first experience of going to China was in 2010. Um, so um, I lived for a, b- a, b- a period of time uh, on a university campus in Sichuan province before then traveling around the country. And one of the things that I think struck me uh, was how China uh, was in some respects very developed, but in others noticeably developing. You still had areas that were clearly... Uh, had levels of poverty that you wouldn't encounter in the UK Um, by the time I returned uh, I was struck by how places like Shanghai Beijing had become even more developed how they felt far more um, far more like modern cities Um, but I suppose being out in in Ningxia, I was also able to see how in certain. Y- so where I lived was an e- was a, was, a, was a city that even in China people don't necessarily know. So a place called Wuzhong, So that's about had about five hundred thousand people in it. Uh, but you travel by bus to a nearby city, so a place called Zhongwei, which was you know a, a three-hour bus ride. You would go through uh, settlements that looked like they hadn't really changed much since the fifties and sixties. Uh, so I think, the, the in terms of the economic change that you notice, it's more I think in in the urban sphere where you see b- you, you you do see the 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 sort of construction of skyscrapers, modern apartment buildings going up. Um, that that sort of the the, the the key thing that you you notice in terms of the changes.
2: And finally, uh, what benefits did living in this very well developed kind of entire country economy bring you?
1: So, so th- this sort of th- the country that was rapidly developing. The other thing as well, actually, I pr- should perhaps add, one of the things which struck me when I was living in China was how um, cashless things were, were going by the time I left there. So things like WeChat Pay. Um, and uh, and uh, I, 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 I can't remember what they call it, Alipay. Um, were were um, were becoming uh, increasingly popular. So you would be able to. T- everyone was using their phones in order to make transactions, which uh, was slightly before um, such things became common in the UK in the UK. Although obviously now with the introduction of things like Apple Pay and Google Wallet, that's that I think has become uh, that bec- has become a little bit more uh, a little bit more common. Um, sorry, could you could you go back to your your question? I just want to make sure I'm actually answering it because I'm aware that. It's, it's been a long week.
2: I said, uh, what benefits did living in this very large and rapidly developing economy bring you?
1: Yeah, so I, I, I think uh, the benefits I wouldn't necessarily tie to the economy. The benefits I would tie more to uh, the cultural environment. So being in a different culture, I think, challenged my own understanding of uh, of how I, d- I suppose, it, it challenged my own world view, so it, so it posed. Ch- it it, it, it's, it allowed me to be exposed to people that, because of their cultural environment, were thinking about the world differently. It exposed me to a different set of traditions, and culture, uh, and a, a different set of different mi- means of doing things. I think that was that that was the value for me, uh, was was sort of widening my own horizons and realizing that actually. Uh, I suppose to emphasize the point there's a lot out there that i that I don't know and I should be, and I should be very very much respectful of that that's uh
0: that's a very interesting point you have there um, now uh, th- thank you for for joining us on our podcast before we close off the episode as it is getting uh, further on into the evening um, we have a few student questions that are drawn from our, our wonderful student body here at the school, uh, some of which uh, are anonymous and some of which wish to be mentioned so First up, we have a question uh, about um, politics, and this is from our very own uh, Jasper Jenkins here at uh, Ipstock. And uh, he asks, the people I- in your school and around your childhood, did you feel then that they uh, had an interest in, in politics back then?
1: In the same way that I think people have an interest in politics today, I think politics, uh, whether or not people claim to be interested in it, is something that impacts people, it is clearly something that impacts people's lives. If you have an opinion on education, you have an opinion on, say, the NHS. Uh, that clearly, uh, that clearly comes back to politics. So yes, people, uh, people were to greater and lesser degrees uh, I- I when I was uh, when I was younger. just talking about my peers now, politically engaged people would have political opinions, and I, ima- I imagine not that I not that I pry too much into your uh, uh, the, uh, the tutor group or indeed the wider year groups political opinions. But um, I, I, my, my instinct would be it would be similar. You have those that are quite vocal about their political stance on things. And you have others uh, that are slightly more reserved but will no doubt have have particular opinions. Uh, Well, um, now this is a follow-up question uh, from that.
0: Would you have supported, say, a motion of decreasing the voting age to 16, thinking about the children you grew up with and whether they've been suitable to vote uh, based on their political knowledge and uh, opinions?
1: Yes. Okay. As as this could bring me treacherously close to providing a, a, a potential a, a insight into my own political opinions, I think I'll answer this. That there are two ways I think of perhaps looking at this. Uh, the first is to say that actually um, reducing the voting age is a beneficial thing because ultimately uh, you guys have to live with decisions that are being made now. So why not have that opportunity to be able to uh, to be able to actually go ahead and. Um, and and, and and get involved in that political process. There are, in fact, some political thinkers that I uh, very much respect uh, who have advocated that p- perhaps political voting ages should be reduced even further than sixteen. Perhaps you should be reducing it to people when they p- when they come to an age where they can uh, where they can write effectively. So uh, there's a p- particular uh, individual called David Runciman who advocates six-year-olds should have the right have the right to vote, which I accept. Looking at all your faces, uh, much like me when you saw that argument. Uh, you thought was somewhat extreme, but actually when you consider that the points that he's putting forward and the fact that it's I- I- if we're talking about voting as a, uh, as a right uh, and as a responsibility, perhaps this is something that people at a young age should be getting involved in. That being said, I think a, a sort of ca- a counterpoint to this is I look back at some of my own political opinions when I was 16, 17, 18, uh, and indeed when I was in my early 20s, um, and I, I think one of the challenges that you have... When you're younger is you don't yet have a, f- a, 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 a sort of c- I think an appreciation for the complexity. I think y- that there is still an area where you um, you're, you're a far more bold I think in youth um, than, than you are as you get older and that circumspection that you get when you go into your uh, when you go into your, to your 20s and you start thinking about the world where you're going out and trying to strike out on your own gives you a degree of appreciation for things. Uh, a, and perhaps gives you a much more sophisticated or should i should say uh provide you with a more sophisticated political view uh that means that your that your voting decision again in theory uh should 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 perhaps be 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 be, be, be better better reasoned um I, I accept i haven't directly answered your question but i've given you at least two lines of the argument on the issue
0: that's uh no tha- no that's uh, that's a good answer um, uh, very sufficient and um Of course, you know, a part of that uh, would be the fact that, you know, younger people don't really have uh the part of the brain that develops you know thinking about the consequences of things so uh, I suppose those long-term decisions would be quite difficult
1: yeah I, I think it's also wi- I think it's also wider commitments because I, I, the thing is I- and this is this is the bit that I I, I think I've, I've found particularly since I got into education speaking with young people there are many many times where people will say things and I will not name names because I would hate to embarrass anyone where I think uh, oh my goodness when I was 15 16 I would say near enough exactly the same thing Um and it's not to say that the the approach is wrong. It isn't necessarily wrong. It's just a product of the fact that you are that m- when you're young, you have that sense of um, uh, you, you have a, you have a sense of uh, a much clearer sense of what you think should be done. Uh, you don't necessarily have the uh, the, the the battering down that, uh, of uh, that, that you get from uh, from wider life experience where you you, you go through and uh, and experience things that haven't quite gone according to plan or or you're exposed to ideas that you hadn't perhaps thought of before and I think that's part of it as, as well as much as it is down to, d- to down to down to brain development and also responsibility. So the fact is is, is as when you get into your twenties. Uh, you, you will have independence. You will have to go off and, uh, and find a place to rent on your own. You will have to start managing your relationships on your own. Yes, you will likely still continue to have f- f- family support and support from friends, but when you're out, when you're out on your own more regularly, it does, it does make a difference to how you think and view things.
0: Very, uh, very good answer uh, from Mr. Watson there. Now, this one is a slightly less serious question that we have from our and Matthew Thorburn. He wants to know, uh, Mr. Watson, do you
1: play any video games? Uh, d- not regularly, I'm afraid, anymore. The last two, so the sort of the, t- the two uh, that I got into last were um, FIFA, I still enjoy in terms of it's a nice way of relaxing, particularly after watching Fulham lose, which unfortunately can be a... Uh, well, it, it, it's, it's unfortunately not as rare as I'd like it to be. Uh, it can sometimes be quite good to just come back and uh, t- turn on FIFA and have that sort of side imaginings of, of Fulham actually uh, punching far above where the, where they are probably capable of. Um, the other, which I got very much into, was um, Breath of the Wild, so The Legend of Zelda, which I know is is a bit controversial. I've mentioned this to certain people at, at school, and they seem to view me as though I'm slightly mad. But uh, that was certainly a game that uh, I, I very much got sort of lost myself in, and and. and Found myself, I think, regressing to how I was when I was a teenager, where I could spend hours fixed on uh, fixed on a game console. Uh, it was uh, I found it actually very disconcerting uh, w- uh, b- during uh, during the during I think this must have been my first year during one of the holidays, uh, realizing that I'd spent two to three hours on uh, on my console, thinking I'd only spent about fifteen minutes.
0: Now we uh, we have uh, two more questions for you um, before we uh, have to part ways, unfortunately. Um, do you have any words for, you know, your students and general armchair history
1: enjoyers? I, I think general har- armchair history enjoyers, I'll, I'll sort of leave them to enjoy their, their history. There'll be something that's already sort of gri- gripped them. Um, what I will go back to in terms of for my own uh, students and indeed gen- generally what more widely younger people is to come back to something I I, I, I mentioned earlier, which is I think there is a, a tendency to think that education is is. Purely about facts. It's purely about what you know, and then how you apply it according to a particular exam specification. Um, and up to a point, that is true. But I also think that there is uh, uh, the the joy of education and the joy of learning comes from honing the questions that you're you you, you mean to ask. So uh, uh, it, when you when you're sort of developing through, certainly when you get sort of to the latter stage of GCSEs, but when you start your a, your process of A-level studies and beyond. Um, I think it's always good to, to bear in mind that it's, it's not necessarily purely about the knowledge that you're getting so you can regurgitate it on a test, but also about thinking about it more deeply so you can start asking questions o- of of that knowledge that you have been given. Uh, because you tend to find those that contribute most to wider society are those that question things more. And the better the question, uh, the, the, uh, the more likely you'll find that you're going to be on the cusp of uh, 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 of something that could br- bring about uh, s- some progress to society and and, and good change
2: good to hear about the opinion on education from an educator because it makes it sound more what's the word? Legitimate yeah, <laughs> that's the word you, um, could always,
1: you could always ask your father as well, I'm sure he'd be happy to, k- to, to, to chime uh, in with some, uh, some I've, good I've insight. I've tried,
2: I've tried <laughs> Finally, uh, <laughs> have you enjoyed your time on this podcast?
1: I have, I, I hope I've not been too verbose because I'm, I'm aware it's Thursday evening after what has been quite a long week for me, I hope I've made sense and I haven't rambled too much
2: the rambling is just enough yeah
1: yeah so a- a- <laughs> excellent it's adequate
2: it's a perf- it's perfect it's amount
0: well i think uh, from everyone here at the back in my day team uh we uh, really enjoyed your time here and um of course we will send you
1: the episode and uh website if you if you wish <laughs> 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 that that would be great thank thank you thank you very much guys for taking the time to to speak with me all right thank okay. you
0: thank you mr watson goodbye
1: bye bye